0: Jonathan Klinger is a well-known Israeli advocate who has dedicated his career to internet and technology-oriented legal matters. Among the services that his law office offers are drafting agreements between shareholders and employees, consultation in regards to the use of copyrighted material, intellectual property, writing of privacy policies, and terms of service. In this podcast, he talks about the legal hurdles web designers should watch out for what precautions they can take to protect themselves. He also explains the reasoning behind the new internet laws that have recently come into effect. Welcome to another episode of Elementor Website Talks. And with me today is someone who deals with the legal side of websites, which is sometimes disregarded by people who get into this business. So Jonathan Klinger, a professional lawyer and a personal friend, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. So we have a lot to cover. I mean, people usually don't, uh, I mean, designers, marketers getting into the web design industry aren't aware of a lot of the legal issues that are uh, very crucial to the the everyday work. Uh, What do you think about that? Okay, so law
1: isn't usually taught um, when you study web development or software development. I actually taught a course in the Khulun Institute of Technology a few years ago uh, that dealt with the legal side of uh, software design. What what we taught was first copyright, trademarks, uh, marketing laws, meaning how to uh, advertise legally, and then we discussed privacy and free speech in my course. Uh, the course, um, if you're interested, there's still the notes uh, up on the cloud somewhere. But um, what we dealt mostly was with the issues that you'll deal with if you start developing or designing websites. Or other kinds of software. The first thing we encar- encountered is that people aren't, aren't aware of copyright laws at all. They don't understand that any photo you find on the web is owned by someone, and if you use it without permission, you might be subject later to damages or penalties. In Israel, it's around 100,000 shekels maximum payment, meaning uh, around 30,000 US dollars and that's only for downloading a photo off the web without someone's permission and re-uploading it. Now there's a lot of exemptions or protections but the general rule is that whatever you find on the web and it doesn't matter if it's an article someone wrote that you really liked or a photo, you need to obtain permission before using it um now people don't understand this and they just say well this is a nice photo i'll put it on my website and i'll deal with it later and usually nothing happens because you know enforcement is lax a lot of photographers don't really enforce their rights but when uh things hit the fan well you see a lot of lawsuits later on so um If you find some image that you like and you want to use it, you you should approach someone and ask for permission before using it. But if you can't find something that you have permission, there's a lot of free sources you can use. You can use uh, Creative Commons searches. Uh, Creative Commons is a type of license that allows you to use some images or content that someone else has uploaded and he gave general permission to use it as long as a few conditions are met, usually that there's credit attribution back to the original author and that you allow others to reuse it. For example, a lot of the content, most of the content on Wikimedia, the a content backend of Wikipedia is licensed under Creative Commons, which means that if there's someone you r- want to write a blog post about, let's say me, and you have a Wikipedia article on that person, let's say me, then you can go to his Wikipedia entry and find his image, click it, and see if it's licensed under Creative Commons. If it is, then you can use it. Uh, if it's not, you need to find somewhere else. Another way to find images, for example, is using U.S. government works. Um, under U.S. copyright law, any work developed for the U.S. government is free of copyright, meaning oh. not only images and articles you can find on the White House uh, website, but also on other .gov websites are free from copyright and you're free to use them. This is a great way to find images of politicians or um, famous people, celebrities, if they participated in some government event. Uh, you can look up uh, in Google Images. You'll do site uh, .gov, and you'll find things from U.S. government works. Um, another way is to find public domain images usually copyright law says that after a set amount of time copyright on images expires or on any work which means that in israel it's death plus 70 70 years after someone died you can pick up the works and use them this means that if there's photographs of uh, made by someone who died more than 70 years ago You can pick up those photographs and use them. On photographs, there's other examples. Works made before um, 1969 in Israel are currently exempt from copyright, but the list goes on. But this is only for images and words. There's another thing that developers run into, which is code. Now, you find a, a set example of code on the web and you want to use it because, well, it does something nice, either for your website design or for your functionality. How can you know whether you can use this? So um, usually uh, you can either find a license, which is a small text file that says you can use this A, B, and C, or uh, this is without a license. Now, if you go to Stack Exchange, for example, you'll see that uh, you'll find a lot of examples of code, But you don't know whether you can use this or not. So you go to the Stack Exchange Terms of Service, and you can see there whether you can use these pieces of code or not. Mm -hmm. Um, In some cases, in some of these example websites, the, the examples are for example purposes only. And I would not recommend taking them into your project because... Uh, I'm not sure you you may use them in your own project. So
0: so images, code, uh, also fonts. I heard there's some lawsuits uh, in the past. Yeah,
1: fonts are copyrighted work like images. Um, uh, Under Israeli law, they go under design patents. But in other places, they go under different types of protection. Uh, fonts that you use you have open font licenses licenses saying you can use this font as is as much as you want and if you want to change this font add something then you have to give download recipients the right to do that as well In software, you have open-source licenses. The most popular is MIT, but also GPL that says usually do whatever you want with the software. But if you pass it around to someone else, then there are a few terms and conditions we want you to abide to. Uh, GPL, for example, uh, says that if you edit some portion of the software, you have to give the changes you made to the downward recipients. Uh, Let's say that you take a piece of Elementor, which is GPL, and add a few functions to it and sell it to your clients. Uh, Your clients have to receive both the source code, which in Elementor is easy, but they also get the right to uh, distribute that portion downward to other people, meaning that any change you made to a GPL-covered work... um, has to be licensed onwards to people and a lot of times web developers try to say well i made this change to wordpress this is only my change i I can restrict clients from using it uh, after they stop paying me but this doesn't uh, hold in court later on because the gpl could be enforced
0: in these cases Um, let's talk about uh, people let's bring it back to people building websites So uh, if my client, uh, as I work with my clients, I also need to make sure that the the website I build, uh, I I usually ask the client for assets, images, videos. So I need to make sure that the content I'm I'm using that my client gave me uh, is also, uh, uh, I can use it. So am I liable as a web designer for that work?
1: Well, yeah, you'll be liable, but... You'll be liable only after the client is, and usually uh, people don't go after the web developers, but uh, they go after the website owners. What I suggest in such case is that the agreement between you and your client will state that first, they examined all aspects and all assets, and they have the rights, and two, that they'll indemnify you, meaning they'll pay if you get sued, if you are sued by someone stating that they um, gave you unlicensed images or pirated content or software. But also, wh- what you have to do is make sure that these people know that uh, about copyright law. Because there's a lot of people who say, "Well, I'll, I'll hire a website designer, and I want this image," and they just send the web designer some image they like from the web, or they find images of themselves from let's say TV shows or video snippets and say to the web designer put this on um, I I dealt with a case where uh, some developer uh, was sued uh, because that the um, video he uploaded uh, of the client on TV uh, was. Um, not the clients, and the person who did hold copyright sued both the uh, client and uh, the web developer was then uh, added to the lawsuit as a party. We oh. settled this out of court, but uh, this um, goes this happened. on. This, this, Th- this, this, this thing does happen. It's not common, but usually you, you have to take caution because uh, let's say uh, the worst case is not getting sued. There's something stronger, which is uh, one of the copyright holders contacts your uh, web hosting company and tells them, well, this guy is infringing on my copyright. Can you please take the website down? And in some cases, they will. So Mm -hmm. you'll lose all your assets hosted on your server just because one of your clients infringed copyright. So this happens, not, not often, but it does happen.
0: What about uh, images that are okay to be redistributed, but they request um, attribution? So usually you need to provide an attribution in this case, like
1: uh, adding the name. Um, I'd go to the furthest extent possible, meaning adding both the name, a link to the original image, because a lot of times these images are not really uh, licensed. Uh, you'll find images that people well, um, let's say, released to the public without permission. They just found some image and decided they want to upload it and in wishful thinking say it's Creative Commons. And it's your responsibility to make sure that the places you take the images from are license these images properly, meaning they have permission from the original author and they're not just pirating it. Let's say you go to YouTube and you find some channel uploading a lot of video clips uh, Mm -hmm. of artists and you'll just go and embed this. And if you didn't do the right uh, work, if you didn't see whether this infringes or not, if this is an official channel or not, you might be later on liable for copyright infringement as well.
0: That's, that's uh, scary. <laughs> um, also you need approval if the ph- photography has images on it of people, you, you also need approval of, of those people being photographed, right?
1: And under Israeli law, and again law differs from state to state, but I- in terms of information law, they're kind of uh, similar. You'll need permission if you use images of people for commercial purposes, Mm. meaning if you use them for illustration purposes, then you do not need uh, these uh, types of permissions. If you found some image of someone in a public space, um, not in his home, and it's not used for advertising or uh, to endorse some service, you will not need his permission if You'll use this image to create banners or to oh, yeah. state that that person endorses uh, a product. Then you'll need uh, his permission. Again, there's exemptions. Let's say that uh, you develop energy drinks, okay, and um, you photograph uh, Kim Kardashian sipping your drink. So, in order to publish it on your website saying, okay, Kim Kardashian likes my energy drink, here's a photo, you won't need her permission. But if you'll go and buy banners and um, uh, signs all over saying, okay, this is my ad, mm. then you'll need her permission because uh, you can't make her endorse your product without her permission. It's not. So, the, it's the th- different- there's, a, there's a difference between reporting news. And endorsing a product, and it's a thin line
0: sometimes. Mm. Yeah, uh, how do how do these uh, companies? I, I know that there are certain companies that that's what they do. They f- kind of litigate uh, uh, stock uh, uh, images being uh, uh, um, being images being used in websites without authorization. How is that tracked and and found?
1: Okay, so a lot of companies go to photographers and buy the rights from them to sell these images. And they have image banks, and they sell images to website developers that they can use. Now, on the other hand, they have technological means to track when a website uses a photo illegally, like Google Photos that can do a search by image. Once they find something, they track down the website owner, they can send a letter, they request money. It's mostly a legitimate business. There are some cases that people abuse this and go after times when there's fair use, meaning uh, there's a permitted, a legitimate interest to use that specific photo, but the, the algorithm doesn't get that. So there's a limited section of these, and also there's a limited section of mistakes like... um I'm not sure if it's an algorithmic mistake, but it's a good example. The hipster that contacted the newspaper about um, them using his unlicensed photo in an article about hipsters, then realizing it's not his photo because all hipsters look alike. <laughs> <laughs> so so it was a thing a few months ago. Um, I'll send you a link. You'll put it in the footnotes. But but again, a lot of times there's two images that were uh, taken of similar places and they look alike and Google thinks it's the same photo or algorithms think it's the same
0: photo but it's not so you'll get these mistakes um we mentioned the contracts so uh, what are the things what are the most important rules of thumb that we need to make sure to include in our client uh, uh, contract so to, to make ourselves more, uh, ourselves, uh, more protected. So the, the way I see it is that certainty
1: supersedes everything else in contracts. And if you want to develop some technological feature for a client, and it, it ha- could be a website, a software, or just a widget, you need to have a few steps. The first is have a manifest you'll send the client a list of all the features in the website or in the widget that they'll be with the draft, schematics, everything, and have two or three iterations with the client on this. And only after this is agreed, you go on to the next stage, which will be uh, design, and get the design. Again, two or three iterations, get the client consent, then do the alpha development, which is uh, the MVP code, get uh, two or three iterations, then do the beta. Now, uh, when I do contracts for web developers, that's what I do. I I run down the steps, and each step says how many iterations there will be, and I use exact dates. Uh, a lot of people don't like to have exact dates. They'll write, I'll do the manifest within up to 45 business days. Mm-hmm. And I say, no, w- what should be in the contract is I'll send you the manifest until October 10." Then by October 15, you'll send me back comments. I'll implement them by October 20. You'll get the, uh, the comments. By October 25, you'll send me back your comments. And on October 30, we'll sit down and we'll finalize manifest. And only then we'll start the next stage. What this does is... It gives you realistic dates because you have to sit down and see that you can actually do these things. It also gives the client incentive to adhere to these dates. A lot of times clients come back two weeks after you've finalized something and say, well, I want to change something. And then Mm. you can tell them, but the agreement said you have to get back to me by this date. And it gives you certainty. It gives you uh, certainty on the times. If you develop multiple projects, you can have a table showing exactly when you'll uh, develop what for which of your clients.
0: Time management for yourself, scheduling. And all of this.
1: Now, after you did this, you add something that's uh, uh, both penal and bonus-wise. You'll go to your client and you'll tell them, this is the list of dates. If I uh, do everything by the book, this is the price. If I get things done quicker, let's say a week or two quicker, then uh, you'll add X and Y to my uh, payment, and if I'm late, after 14, 15 days, I'll reduce this and this from my payment. This gives everyone incentive to be on time, which is kind of important when you're doing web development. A lot of times, people have to set up shop by a specific date. They have a book release they want to abide to, uh, and uh, you need to have certainty. The next thing you need to manage is post, um, post-termination support. You've finalized the website. Now, what goes on with support? What happens if they find a bug? What happens if there's an update on the Elementor or WordPress version? Who deals on updating and how much will it cost? Now, if, let's say, I built a website on Elementor and Elementor updated the feature and now I need to update my pages... Who pays for these updates? Will it be the developer or the client? Will this support go 10 days, 20 days, 30 days after build, or two years after build and um, support times? How long will I have to wait until I receive uh, an input on my tickets? Um, I sent you a ticket today. Uh, Let's say, uh, when will you respond? When will you update? All of this has to be implemented in your contract, because if it's not then uh, the client's expectations and yours don't meet and then you'll meet in court and the judge won't necessarily see eye to eye with you, you on how websites should be built
0: if the uh, things go wrong people don't want to reach court so if uh, the the i for example i don't get the the assets i need on time from the the client or his uh, their approval what are the measures I can do before going to court to kind of mitigate uh, things and, and solving them?
1: So you mean if a client doesn't pay you or if a client no. doesn't respond doesn't when respond, I say, yeah. please send me a
0: logo. Exactly. Now,
1: if you're a web developer and you have a proper agreement which says the client has to submit log- logo by, let's say, uh, December 20, then if he doesn't, you can either delay your work Or just stop working. Now, if you um, designed the the agreement in a proper manner, saying, let's say, that he needs to pay in advance, the advance should cover most of your costs until that moment. So if you'll quit on that moment, you you can keep the money, and the client uh, will get back to you two, three, four months from now, and you'll renegotiate prices. But if not, then you might start to see how to collect money from clients, which... In web design is not easy.
0: I, I'm curious uh, to ask, how did you... Uh, you're uh, an advocate that focuses on uh, internet, uh, information-oriented businesses and persons. How did you reach this field? Like, what drew you in? I didn't want to do real estate <laughs> or <laughs> debt collection.
1: Well, um Uh, I I, uh, finished my law school in 2004, went to intern in the court system. And I was um, then accepted to the bar by 2005. Uh, And then I went to work in an international consulting firm. I worked for two years there um, and decided I want to become self-employed because uh, I don't want to work for others. And I want to deal with tech and tech regulation because this is uh, uh, an emerging field. There's a lot of work. There's almost no knowledge. And uh, I studied it. I did uh, part of my master on internet law, uh, on my master's degree, uh, a few courses also in my bachelor's degree in internet law. Um, and I started working, uh, doing, the, let's say, easy stuff, um, writing software licenses, litigating uh, small copyright cases, working on uh, privacy policies for uh, startups, and uh, grew my clientele. Uh, and... In parallel, I started going to the Israeli parliament and um, providing my opinion on new upcoming bills uh, relating to copyright, privacy, etc. And, uh, you know, business uh, happened. When when did
0: this business develop? Like, when did it originate? My business or 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 internet
1: business? was here, let's say, from the early 2000s. But you have to understand that most um, tech lawyers uh, don't do tech. They they do do the outer areas. They do corporate finance. They'll do uh, labor law. They'll maybe do some commercial agreements. But most lawyers don't understand how technology works. So in order to give good advice, you need to understand how technology works. If you uh, develop a flashlight app for Android, let's say, then um, you need to understand the the Google regulation and how your flashlight interacts with that regulation. Can you save uh, some data or can't you? Uh, What data do you need to save? Now, my approach to um, tech development is that if you do things by the book and if you do them right, uh, you can reduce litigation and reduce risks by working by the book instead of trying to write paperwork later on and long agreements. Um, I try to write human-readable material instead of legalese. Um, You'll see that there's a a nice algorithm called Flesh Kincaid, which is a readability score. It tests how many uh, years of education do you have to have before you can read this document. Now, when I write documents, I try to make them with, let's say, 11 years, 10 years. So people in the 10th grade, yeah, uh, high schoolers can read them. Uh, Most lawyers go up to 20, 25, meaning that you'll have to have a PhD (laughs) in order to read something. Uh, Why is this so important? Because uh, if you have human-readable documents, then you'll go to court less because people will understand what happens. This is very important when you deal
0: with law. Uh, well, there are certain issues that, uh, I mean, everyone needs to know, um, and if we're talking about e-commerce stores with, uh, you know, disclaimers to contact forms wh- where you need to show the, the terms, how can people uh, kind of uh, learn that and and, and follow the, the, the regulations without having a law degree? So... Um,
1: the easy thing to say is that if you operate an online business, you should consult a lawyer. And it, it doesn't matter uh, what you do. If you sell uh, clothes online or if you do affiliate marketing, you should have a lawyer that's proficient in the rules. But um, there's a lot of good databases explaining what you should do and having good content Um both from lawyers in the field, that you can read their blogs. You can also read my blog uh, if if you want, but it's more anecdotal. Uh, but also, uh, you can start by just reading the rules. Um, the GDPR, the, the EU law, is only 84 pages long. <laughs> uh, it's not that much if, if you consider that the U.S. budget could be uh, twenty or 30,000 pages long, Um you can also read a bit about um, the California Privacy Act. You should start with Wikipedia. Read what Wikipedia says about something. It's a good starting point. Then if you have any questions, you can go and pop up a question to lawyers on relevant forums. You can ask other businesses. And there's a lot of good places that have the know-how Um and uh, see w- what other people do. It's a good starting point, but always, always, always consult the lawyer. There's a good place in Reddit uh, that's uh, um, called uh, slash r slash uh, legal advice, and you'll, you, you might pop up a question there. If you need some help, there's a good uh, chance that a good lawyer will reply. Um, you can find questions on copyright on Reddit, on uh, slash r slash copyright also, and for privacy on slash r slash privacy. Uh, I'm saying this not only because I subscribe to these threads and sometimes answer, but also because you'll find other good people there that can help you, even if they're not lawyers. Also, I recommend joining slash r slash small business. If you're a small business owner, there's a lot of good information there about running a small business, including online businesses.
0: Um, In in recent years, there's been so many changes. I mean, GDPR, you mentioned, and we've seen all the cookie consent uh, buttons spread out now. Uh, uh, What's the change that is happening and uh, how does it affect uh, designers? As I see
1: it, the change, the GDPR, which is the EU directive on privacy and the cookie directive and the California uh, Privacy Protection Act, they all go and say, well, there's these big tech giants that come and try to change our culture. And in the EU, it's more, um, um, let's say, obvious. We don't want big American tech companies coming he- in and changing the way we as a nation, have our own national identity. We want to reduce this. And when doing so, we'll see how they deal. And we want to make sure that people have their own individual rights. Now, these individual rights include the right to control your own data. As I understand it and as I see it, your data, your personal data, includes your right to make money off your personal data. Whether you can you can or can't allow someone to sell your data is your right. Uh, the, these laws came into effect to ensure consent. Consent is not the only thing here, but consent is a good st- starting point. It says that... If you want to use my data, ask my permission first. And if I'll agree there are still terms, I can, let's say, um, retract my consent later on. I I can limit it. I can ask you to stop at any time. But consent is the basis. Now, consent is kind of hard to get because it, it implies that you agree to all these terms. You have all these terms in mind. You understood them and reading legal papers is not that easy. Let's say you go into a parking lot and they have license plate cameras. Do you consent to process the your license plate number and go to the mis- municipality and see if you're entitled to a discount or not? Should this be written down on a big sign before your car crosses uh, the post or not? All of these questions are good questions that the GDPR doesn't address. Um, In in a think tank uh, I sat in that dealt with changing the Israeli privacy protection law, we offered a few alternatives that consent is only one of because we acknowledge that it's not always easy to get consent and it's not always easy to make sure that the person knows what is being done with his data. So um, all these laws that came into effect want to simplify Uh, the way your data is used, but what happened is that they created a lot of paperwork, and we saw that in May 2018 when all these websites sent us an email saying, we've changed and updated our privacy policy, please accept. But the matter of fact is that no one reads these. Um, uh, I'm quite certain that a lot of people who read privacy policies I've written, and as much as I've tried to make them human readable, didn't go past the first page. They just clicked I agree. The the reason is we don't have time. A research that was done a few years ago said that if we'll have to um, sit down and read all the privacy policies we consent to yearly, we'll spend around a quarter of our time, let's say uh, 70 or 80 days, just to read these if we (laughs) read on a human pace and understand it. So there's too much paperwork, And we acknowledge this and we try to make it as easy as possible. I tried to work um, and start a working group that deals with machine-readable privacy policies, meaning that you'll say um, in an XML format, this website collects A, B, C, and D. It uses E, F, and G, and your browser will read this for you and put up little icons telling you what is being done, and you'll you'll be able to change your consent. Now, um, there was a working group with uh, W3C that dealt with this as well, but uh, we couldn't get to standardize it because uh, we didn't have the resources. We, well, we had a good idea, we had nice meetings, but uh, in order to execute this, you'll need big forces like Google and Facebook behind you and not just, you know, four guys with a nice idea
0: that's very interesting I think that the the more technology evolves and you have cameras everywhere and uh, also the more every uh, web creator gets uh, empowered to create software and everyone can create their their own show their own uh, uh, website that gives uh, a a lot of power and that power also gives responsibility and that's why I think uh, I mean, that's such a relevant topic uh, that if, if in the past only only litigators dealt with the, these uh, topics, now site owners as well and, and creators, yeah.
1: yeah. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, you can check out uh, my Twitter on John Klinger, J-O-N-K-L-I-N-G-E-R. And you can read my blog at steamit.com
0: slash johnklinger or 2jk.org slash English. Jonathan, thank you for being on our show. And uh, I really like your uh, approach of uh, kind of changing uh, and making uh, advocacy more accessible and, and uh, litigation more more easy to read and understand. Thanks for
1: inviting me again. And I really like Elementor <laughs> and, and the staff here. We
0: like you too. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> bye. bye. bye.